presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about centaurs and ministry methods. Welcome, everybody, to episode 63 of First Years. Today, we're going over chapters 32 and 33 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So, last we left off, Harry had a dream in the middle of his last OWL exam, and he thinks that Sirius is in trouble. And his first instinct is to get help. But of course, McGonagall isn't around, because that would have been a little too convenient, wouldn't it? This moment gives me the same kind of feeling as in Sorcerer's Stone, when Dumbledore is heading to London at the moment that Harry needs an adult to tell what's going on. And there's a quote about McGonagall here. Quote, There was nobody left to tell. Dumbledore had gone, Hagrid had gone, but he had always expected Professor McGonagall to be there, irascible and inflexible, perhaps, but always dependably, solidly present. Unquote. That speaks so much to McGonagall's presence in these books. When hasn't she been there? She's been as much of a staple to Hogwarts as Hagrid has. And really, this is just another way that Harry's been abandoned in this book. Not on purpose, of course, she's injured, but all of these dependable people that we're so used to seeing at Hogwarts, they're not around. And so Harry truly has himself to depend on to figure out a solution to what's going on. So where is left for Harry to turn? His best friends. But it doesn't go quite as smoothly as he thinks it will. He has trouble convincing Hermione, especially, of what's going on. She points out that there are some serious questions regarding how Voldemort could have gotten into the ministry during work hours without being noticed, and that Voldemort knows Harry's M.O., that he will save others. So perhaps this is just a tactic to get Harry to the ministry, that maybe none of this is actually real. I have to say, at this moment, we don't know what's real and what's not. But I very much admire Hermione in this moment. It takes a lot of guts to be the voice of reason. And I think, oftentimes in these books, her being the voice of reason can come across as annoying, because we're so close to Harry's point of view. But it's an important role for her to have. Harry can often act emotionally, and he's very much acting emotionally right now which we cannot blame him for. He's worried that Sirius is going to die at Voldemort's hand. And the last time he saw something like this, he was right, and he ended up saving Mr. Weasley's life. But it definitely pays to have someone like Hermione, who is slightly removed from the situation, to say, hey, you know what, let's discuss what you just saw and whether or not it makes sense so that we can analyze the best course of action. 
She points out some of Harry's flaws to his face, which again is a hard thing to do, but this is when her rational, analytical mind comes in handy, because she does make some important points. And that's what leads them into the plan to check whether Sirius is home or not before they go rushing into the ministry. Something that Harry wouldn't have thought of otherwise. It's so evident that Harry and Hermione stand on opposite ends of the issue. When Hermione is shocked, Harry wants to check that Sirius is okay right at that moment and not wait. Because in her mind, it's clear that he probably isn't at the ministry. And in Harry's mind, he undoubtedly is. The plan was a good one, but not executed very well, as they get caught almost immediately. But there was enough time for Harry to have a conversation with Creature, who assures Harry that Sirius won't be coming back from the Department of Mysteries. But how much do we trust Creature at this point in the book? As Umbridge is trying to get Harry to tell her who he was trying to talk to, She sends Draco to go get Snape, and Harry realizes that he could have, and probably should have, gone to Snape about this. And I think that speaks to the fact that Harry just does not see Snape as an ally, so he isn't going to think of him, or put him on the list of people he can trust and reach out to when something goes wrong. But it would have been interesting to see what Snape did if Harry did come to him about it in the first place. Because we really don't know where his loyalties lie. But he does try a last-ditch effort by telling Snape, quote, he's got Padfoot at the place where it's hidden, unquote. Now, do you think that Snape will be helpful in this situation? What are his priorities? I'm sure there will be a debate between his lack of wanting to help Harry and what he needs to do to fulfill his position in the Order. I guess this may be a true test for him to prove to us what side he's on, especially because it's serious. This may be more than him just not wanting to help Harry, but to also not want to help someone he actively hates Possibly more than Harry, really. And what comes next is just... Ugh. It's just sickening. Umbridge thinks, I'm using that in air quotes, she doesn't have any other choice but to use an unforgivable curse on Harry. And she's actively trying to justify it by saying that it's a matter of ministry security, and she has the audacity to blame Harry by saying, quote, You are forcing me, Potter. I do not want to, but sometimes circumstances justify the use. I am sure the minister will understand that I had no choice. Unquote. Literally no. You absolutely have a choice, and you cannot convince me that she hasn't wanted to use this against Harry because she's done other terrible things to him. From actual torture, in detention, to sending Dementors after him. This is a big, 
shocking moment because it's not just about Umbridge's decision to, you know, break the law, a law that would send her to Azkaban for the rest of her life, mind you, but about the fact that she's capable of using it. Who taught her the curse? If you're going to learn unforgivable curses, you're probably already leaning into cruelty in your life to even have the desire to learn them. We learned in book four that these curses come with a life sentence in Azkaban. Yet Umbridge is confident that she probably won't face consequences because, you know, the minister will understand. Will he actually understand? That's a horrifying thought. Or will he just make an exception for her and keep her out of prison? Another horrifying thought. This moment of Umbridge talking to herself shows us how deep the ministry corruption goes. It shows how unstable this body of government is and how they really don't care about how they accomplish their goals. The minister was just grateful to have a chance to expel Harry. He didn't care that Dementors were off where they shouldn't be or that someone must have ordered them there. Umbridge shines a light on what's been going on in the ministry. Quote, They were all bleeding about silencing you somehow, discrediting you, but I was the one who actually did something about it. Unquote. The ministry is literally waging a war against a 15-year-old. Let that sink in. That says so much about the priorities of the wizarding world and the ones that lead that society. It's scary. And it's horrifying that a teacher, someone who is supposed to look after children and teach them and guide them, is ready to torture a student to get information. Which doesn't work. We've seen this on a smaller scale with people that have been interrogated for hours at a time, even without torture. They'll eventually confess to something they never did just to get out of the room. And when you look into torture, the evidence is clear. It does not work. It's not an effective way to get someone to tell you information. Because when someone is put under extreme stress, their cognitive performance reduces and it causes gaps in someone's ability to recall information. The idea that it works, it's pure fiction. And this goes back to the witch trials. People will say anything, regardless of if it's true or not, in order to make the pain stop. So their word isn't reliable in that situation. In a 2014 report from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, it found that enhanced interrogation techniques from the CIA didn't work on gaining intelligence, and that many people who were tortured gave false information. That can be from both the desperation to make the pain stop, and because of the poor recall that's associated with the body's response to torture. Extreme stress in torture attacks the brain 
and causes tissue loss and long-term pain disrupts memory, mood, and cognition. Plus, in those situations, with leading questions, the information given by the torturer can end up in whatever made-up answer that the person being tortured gives. Another 2014 study proved that relationship building is actually the key to getting correct information, because people can recall things clearly and they'll actually share the information earlier. So Umbridge's plan isn't going to be effective at all. And this makes me wonder about the situation with Neville's parents. Umbridge is stooping to using a tactic the Death Eaters use. And it's not something that works. It only harms the people being tortured in the end. And in that following moment, when Hermione supposedly breaks because she's worried about Harry, it's all a lie. Again, proving that this method doesn't work. The threats don't work. Hermione is able to fool Umbridge into going into the forest with them by acting like she's worried enough about Harry that she'll tell Umbridge what she needs to know. Hermione's plan works, and we face the centaurs yet again, and neither Harry nor Hermione need to do much work. Umbridge digs herself into a hole and gets dragged off by the centaurs. And the centaurs almost take Harry and Hermione away too. There is some talk that they don't hurt foals, but it seems their anger almost gets the best of them. And if it weren't for Grop to come in as a distraction, they may have been dragged off as well. It's evident in this book that there is a big divide between centaurs and humans, and it seems like it's mostly the humans' fault, because the wizarding world views them as less than and has probably taken a lot of their habitat from them. And there are rules within the centaur society about working for humans. It's kind of what ensures they aren't being viewed like horses and to be creatures that work for witches and wizards. It establishes that boundary to ensure their dignity. But we know that line doesn't have to be black and white. Like with friends teaching, that's something he views as a favor for Dumbledore, someone he respects. But it came with violent consequences. Friends is definitely someone who sees the line as more gray, while it's clear Bane sees it as black and white. Centaurs come from Greek mythology as a race of half-man, half-horse beings that live in the mountains of Thessaly and Arcadia. They stem from King Ixion, who had lusted after Hera, and so Zeus created a cloud called Nephili, I think, or Nephel, that looked like Hera, and Ixion, I don't know if slept with is the right term here, because they do reproduce, but one account in my research called it violated, so it's unclear whether it was consensual or not. But the end result was that Ixion was doomed to eternal punishment, and Centaurus was born from Nephili, or Nephel, who then mated with the Magnesian mares and brought about the centaurs. 
One famous account of the centaurs is when they fought the Lapiths and were almost destroyed and driven to Mount Pelion. This is because they attended the wedding of Pirithus, their half-brother, and they tried to carry off the bride and other women in attendance, and the resulting battle almost destroyed them completely. Originally, centaurs were presented as being men completely in their front half, so picture a man standing, and then he has a horse body attached to his back, while later they were presented as what we're familiar with now, which is a man about to the waist or the hips, and then the rest is horse. One possibility for their introduction is that Thessalians spent a lot of time on horseback, and so it's possible their neighbors, upon seeing them and how talented they were on them, thought that they were one being. So it's interesting here that in the mythology, they try to carry off women, and this happens right here in the book. That's Umbridge's exit, for now, as we know. Yet it doesn't seem to be something that is caused by lust, which is a guess of what happened in the lore at the wedding, but out of anger from being so disrespected. As Harry and Hermione finally have the immediate threats gone, they need to figure out what to do. And Ginny, Neville, Luna, and Ron show up. And they're ready to help Harry on this mission. Harry says, quote, If he could have chosen any members of the DA, in addition to himself, Ron, and Hermione, to join him in the attempt to rescue Sirius, he would not have picked Ginny, Neville, or Luna. Unquote. Which is kind of unfair. Neville has been progressing beautifully, and he's the one that points out that the DA was about doing something real. So these may not be who you would have chosen, Harry, but these are the ones that showed up for you and are ready to go for it. And that's really what counts. That is loyalty right there. Even if it's from people he didn't expect it from. They're there. And that counts for a lot. At least in my book. Harry really tries to not get the others to come with them. And this could be a combo of his judgment here, but also the fact that he's had to rely on himself almost all book. And yet here's a group that is ready to go with him. And so perhaps he's just not used to accepting this kind of help. When literally any other time he's needed it in this book, he's been unable to get it. And most of that, I will point out, has been from adults. And so here are his peers that he can rely on. They're going to fly the Thestrals to London to help save Sirius. And I love the juxtaposition of the Thestrals, these beings that represent death, being attracted to blood, which is something that makes them so scary to people and why they have so many myths surrounding them, and it's something we associate with death, right? But juxtapose that with the fact that they're using these beings to help save someone from death. That's a pretty awesome detail, and quite a moment to leave off with this chapter. So let us know your theories of what's going to happen in the next few chapters. Reach us at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram 
at First Years Pod. You can find me on Instagram at Verita Sarum, V-E-R-I-T-A-S-A-R-A-H-M. And you can also find me at that same handle on TikTok. I will say my personal account on Instagram and my TikTok are not spoiler free, but first years always will be. For next episode, you need to read chapters 34 and 35, and I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones-Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash firstyearspodcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.